for our kids. Let's do hey, I got a, a couple of things I want to do just before we get into the message. First, we just want to say hi to Pastor Michael Giroux, who's uh, visiting from D.C. this morning. So they were down here for a golf tournament, got rained out. But, but uh, eight years ago, this January, uh, Michael and his wife Heather, who is Vanessa's, my wife's sister, uh, were on staff at Christian Life Center, and God really spoke to them about planning a church. And so the City Life Church got started because of the vision that God birthed in his heart. And uh, so all of this is here, even in Newport News, uh, because of the work that they did uh, with their plant team. So it's good having you here, man. It's good having you here. So, Hey, I just got a couple of things I want to share before we get into the message. I went to the, the uh, anybody gain any weight over the holidays? I put on five pounds since Thanksgiving. I was like, that's ridiculous. So I was on my, what I call the old man machine yesterday morning, the elliptical machine at, the, at Planet Fitness. And uh, as I was there, I just really felt like God began to speak to me about our uh, anniversary service weekend, our launch service weekend, and about uh, the vision that we have for 2014 that we shared in, in September. We felt like the phrase that God's given us for 2014 is to come up. Uh, this is based out of Revelation 4. And I really just felt like God began to speak to my heart. I want to share a couple of those things, and then we're going to wrap up the sermon series this morning that we've been in. It's a wonderful life. But so to help illustrate what I felt like I was spoke, speaking to me, I brought one of my Christmas presents, a spotting scope uh, that I've been waiting for for a long time. So when I go to the rifle range and I'm sighting in a scope or just doing some target practice, this enables you to see it at a magnification that's just beyond uh, the scope on your, on your rifle. And so they, a good measure for a spotting scope for average people like me is can you see a 22 caliber hole in black paper at 100 yards, right? And, and kind of the rule is with, with, with optics is that you get what you pay for, right? So, so, so you could say the principle is what you can see is based on what you can afford. Does that make sense? So we're going to see what $59.99 does for, uh, for me here with this. I'm going to pass this to Vanessa. So, so as I was <clears throat> at the gym working out, and, and I felt like the, that one of the things that, that God spoke to me was this idea that in, in God's world, what you can see is based on who you know. It's based on who you know. And so when you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and you take your first spiritual breath, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you, then you begin to know God as your Father. And when you know Him as your Father, He will begin to enable you to see things that with your natural eye will seem impossible. What you, what, what you can see is based on who you know. And as this relationship with God grows and matures, that he will begin to enable you to see things supernaturally that to the natural world seems like that could never happen. And I felt like God spoke to me that in 2014, that for everybody who calls the City Life Church our home, that we're going to be praying that God's going to enable us to see three things. And they relate to the three groups of people that we feel like we're called to reach as a church. So we want to reach the undevoted, we want to reach the disconnected, and we want to reach the discipled. We want to see our message, Heaven Now, Heaven Forever, brought to all three of those groups of people. And our message, Heaven Now, Heaven Forever, means something very different to each one of those groups of people. To the undevoted, to the people that have never made a vow of devotion to Christ, our message, Heaven Now, Heaven Forever, is a message of liberty. It, it's people, if you remember your own story, like I remember my story, you belong to evil and you don't even realize it, right? We live into the lie of thinking that I'm free because I'm not bound to Christ. And what we know now is that it's only when I'm bound to Christ am I truly free. And so the message of the gospel is a message of liberty. Heaven now, heaven forever is a message of liberty to people that have yet to make a vow of devotion to Christ. And so I believe that God's saying to all of us that he's going to show us. He's going to enable every one of us to see somebody that we're supposed to play a part in their life and them coming to make a vow of devotion to Christ in 2014. 
It might be a family member. It might be a neighbor. It might be somebody that you don't know yet. I'm believing that there's going to be some supernatural things that happen. You might see someone in your dream that you don't know and that, that God's going to say, hey, this is the person. And it might be that the house next to you goes for sale and the family that moves in, right? That the husband that moves in, you're like, oh, no, I, that's the guy from my dream, right? There's going to be who you know determines what you can see. And when you know the creator of the universe, he's going to enable you to see things that with your natural eye that you would never be able to do. So we're believing that we're going to pray. We're going to see some things this year. Every person is going to see somebody that God's going to give you a vision for that you're going to help be a part of their journey and their story. The next one is the disconnected. People that have made a vow of devotion to Christ, but they've just given up on the family of God. And oftentimes for good reason, right? People have been hurt by the church. They've, sometimes people are betrayed by spiritual leaders. Sometimes people are disappointed in very deep ways. And so they pull back from the family of God. They pull back from the body of Christ. And we call that living as a spiritual orphan, or we use the phrase disconnected. And for them, our message is one of community, that we want people to rediscover again the joy of being connected to the family of God. We believe so much in this thing called the church that we would say that you are not complete until you find the spiritual family that God put you on this earth to be a part of. And you complete that church when you come. The church that you're supposed to be a part of, there is a, a work of, of being completed that you experience, and then there is a work of completing that you bring by being a part. And we believe that God's going to enable every person who calls this their church home to see somebody. It might be a family that, that you know that just pulled back from the church. They've been hurt. They've been disappointed. They're disconnected from the family of God and the body of Christ. That God's going to give you a vision for how you're going to be a part of helping them reconnect. It might not be that the City Life Church is the place of their long-term connection, but this might be the place that they come to where healing takes place. It might be this is the place that they come to where they rediscover their appetite and their ability to trust again. And then it might be that they end up going back to the church that they left, and we're going to help facilitate that healing and that reconciliation. But God's going to enable you to see somebody that you're, that, that you're going to be a part of bringing a message of liberty. He's going to enable you to see somebody. You're going to bring a message of community. And the last one is he's going to enable you to see yourself. He's going to enable you to see some areas of your life that need to mature, right? Because to the disciple, heaven now, heaven forever is a message of maturity. That none of us have the freedom to say, I'm good right where I am. We, we cannot be followers of Christ and not be changed by him. And the reading through the Bible in the year, right, we've been in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You cannot read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and, and not say that if you're following Christ, you've got to be changing. And if you're not changing, then you've got to ask yourself a pretty hard question, am I following Christ? Because in John's mind, when he wrote those three epistles, he's saying, hey, they're one and the same. If you follow this man that we call Lord, then he's going to change you on this journey. And I believe that God's going to give all of us a vision for certain areas of our life that need to mature. It might be some of the 24 virtues that we talk about. It might be some of the 12 pathways that have atrophied in your life that need to come alive again for you. That he's going to give you a vision for something in your life. And if you're not sure what that is and you're married, that should be a conversation that you have with your spouse, right? What are some things that you see in me that you think need to mature, right? And I, I get it. That could be a dangerous question to ask. But that's part of doing life together, right? That we have blind spots. It's one of the beauties of deep relationship. If you're in a men's group, throw it out at the group. Some of the guys that you hang with. Are there any areas of, and if they pull out a list, I've just been waiting so long, right, for you to ask that. You just say, just give me one, right? Just need one at a time. Just need one. But, but he's going to give each of us a vision for who we're supposed to bring a message of liberty to, who we're supposed to bring a message of community to, and, and for our own selves for this idea of mature. So let's just pray into that, and then we're going to launch into our message this morning. Father, we do believe that with you, 
that because of who we know, that determines what we can see. And that you are the creator of the universe and that you see all things. And then sometimes you give us a glimpse. You just give us a glimpse with an eye that's on the inside. And Father, maybe, may it be that even beginning today that all of us would begin to say, God, I can't wait to see the person that you're going to put on my heart that I'm supposed to help bring them to a place of decision for Christ. That, that, that there would be an excitement and an, an enthusiasm that begin to well up inside of us for that some point during 2014 that, that we're going to be standing with someone maybe in a setting just like this and they're going to take their first spiritual breath and, and the joy and the celebration that comes to us for being honored to be a part of something like that. God, that, that there's going to be a sense of excitement and enthusiasm for a person or a family. Maybe it's a family member that's just completely withdrawn from the body of Christ and the family of God. That you're going to begin to give us a vision for who it is that we're supposed to make a personal project this year. That we're going to begin to think strategically. That we're going to begin to go after them. That we're going to begin to pray for them. We're going to see them rebirthed into the family of God. And Father, may it be that for all of us, that there would also be a sense of excitement for how you're going to change us. That how we, when we get to this point at the end of 2014, that we're going to look back and say, oh, how I've changed and fill in the blank. That you are going to give us a vision. That you're going to enable us to see something deep inside of us that needs to mature. That we're going to move forward as we follow Christ into this journey of transformation. In Christ's name, come on. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, we are in a series uh, called It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, uh, we, we talked about maybe doing a quiz. We didn't do that last night. We had some other things for, for the movie, some trivia stuff and some giveaways. So we're going to push that this morning, too, for the sake of time. But what we're going to do is I'm going to put that online. And if you want to take it, it will kind of be on your honor, right? Come on. We're all Christians here, right? So, so, so we're on your honor. And then you, we're gonna, we'll do some giveaways next weekend at both campuses for who got the highest scores. And so you're just kind of, it's about 15 questions that we've come up with. So if, if you've been studying for that, if you've, been, if you've watched, how many? times have you watched It's a Wonderful Life, Serena? She's nodding her head this week. Just once? Okay, gotcha, gotcha. She was nodding her head like I watched it every day, right? So, so we'll put those questions online. It'll probably be on Facebook, and, uh, and then you can take that, and then we'll do some giveaways next week. So, so It's a Wonderful Life, and we, we love this idea. Obviously, the movie gave us some creativity for the series, but, but it's such a restatement of what we believe as a church. Heaven now, heaven forever, Psalm 27, 13. You know, I was thinking as Jamie was doing that wrap-up, love that wrap-up this morning coming out of worship, that when he was talking about things that have happened this year, uh, we got an email from somebody last night who's been visiting the Newport News campus for a few times. It's just been a really tough year, and, uh, and I what I felt like God spoke to me to encourage them that, that everything that's happened this year is under the promise of Romans 8.28. And everything that's waiting for you in next year is un, under the promise of Psalm 27.13, right? So as you look back over your year, if you've got some things that have been hard, like Jamie was talking about, that you didn't choose to go through, all things work together for the good who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then as you look forward into 2014, Psalm 27.13, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the Romans 8.28 is, 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 is over 2013 and Romans and, and Psalm 27.13 is over 2014. So it's a wonderful life. We believe that. We don't have to wait until we die to experience the 
goodness of God for the very first time. So we're not going to redo all of these. You can get it on the podcast for the last couple of weeks. But we said, as you look into the narrative, as you look into the story of the birth of Jesus, God teaches us that there are five responses that we are supposed to have. Four we're supposed to grow into more and more, and one we're supposed to grow out of. And then in our series, we've been talking about this last one, that there is a material response that we're supposed to have when we have a revelation of who Christ is, and that's part of the lesson the Magi and the wise men give to us. You think about all of the different ways that God could have worked some type of theme into the story of the birth of Christ, and one of these, he says, hey, I want you to understand that generosity is supposed to define you as a father follower of Christ. And so the text, again, we're not going to read it today, but just people who haven't been here, just to get them up to speed a little bit, or if you're a note taker, at Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11, this is the text that we've been working through to talk about the story of the birth of Christ. And then right there in verse 11, it culminates. There's a crescendo. It kind of, as you're reading the story, you feel like it's coming to a moment, and the moment that it comes to is a moment of generosity. Now, a lot of Christian historians believe, and I'm of this mindset too, that the wise men probably didn't find Christ until he was probably a toddler, that the shepherds were there on, at his birth, but it was probably a few years later before the wise men came. And, and, and I find that instructive because it was as though God was saying, hey, the, the explanation point to this whole story of the birth of Jesus is going to end with the one that I want to bring extra emphasis to, and the one that he brings extra emphasis to is generosity with our material things. It's powerful, powerful. All right, so this is our, our, our principle, our truth. My material response is simply the outflow of generosity from my life in light of who I believe Jesus to be. Let me say that again. My material response is simply the outflow of generosity from my life in light of who I believe Jesus to be. And I want to read out of 1 John 5, 21. It says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And I believe one of the reasons why God created material things is so that we could step into moments of generosity. And when we step into those moments of generosity, we learn something about ourselves. That, that we talked about how the, the, through science and technology you can see inside your physical body with an MRI or with an x-ray, but how do we see inside of our immaterial self? How do we see inside of the, the, the spiritual part of who we are? And one of the ways that we do is through moments of generosity. You, nothing will teach you about yourself like opportunities that you have to give to people and how you feel in those moments and what you do in those moments. If you want to see inside of yourself, you want to see your spiritual condition, then think about times this year where you've had an opportunity to be generous towards someone. Think about an uh, opportunity you've had this year to give something to someone. What were the feelings that came in your heart and what did you do? How generous did you go? How far did you go in that moment? You learn something about who you are on the inside by learning about the outflow of generosity from your life on the outside. So we've talked in this series about how generosity reveals our heart. We've talked about how it, last week we talked about how it reveals our point of view. And then this morning what we want to talk about is how generosity reveals our faith. That you learn a lot about the kind of faith that you have by moments of generosity that you are presented with. Now we didn't get through all of this last night. We might not get through all of it this morning. If that's the case, then I'll blog through the final points and you can read those online. But, but we felt like that we, if we're going to talk about faith a little bit, let's, let's talk about what some things 
things that we believe about faith. Because there's lots of teachings in churches today about faith. And so we just want to bring some clarity. What do we believe as a church about faith, especially when it comes to material things? Well, you can't talk about faith without starting in Hebrews 11.1, right? That faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I think this verse is just as much about hope as it is about faith. And I would argue that the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was trying to help us to understand that if your heart has lost its capacity to hope, then you'll never have faith because hope is the seed of faith. We think about faith being the seed of things. We think about faith being the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen, and that's true. But right here in the text, the writer is telling us under the inspiration of God that, hey, faith also has a beginning, and the beginning of faith is hope. And hope is not some superficial human sentiment. Now, do we use hope as, as, a, as a, an expression of a superficial human emotion? Sure we do. Sure we do. But, but there's, there's another kind of hope. This, this hope in Romans 5, 4b through 5, Paul writes, he says this kind of hope. He's trying to understand, he's trying to help us understand that, hey, that, that there is a certain kind of hope that is sacred. There's a certain kind of hope that is spiritual. There's a certain kind of hope that is deep inside. So, so how, many, how many people this year got a present that you wish that you had not have gotten? At Christmas. Anybody get anything? We did a little participation. You would have, it was hilarious, some things that people share. Anybody get something and you open it and you had to use your, oh, this is not, thank you, right? You have to lie a little bit at Christmas sometimes, right? What did you get? Great, see, right, right, yeah, see, that's right, right, and you have to teach them, they smile and they show appreciation, but, but, you, but you're thinking to yourself, I, I hope the return lines at, at the store are not going to be long for me to go, so like my, my mom, right, so my mom, she's, she's, uh, she's, she's approaching her 80s, and, uh, and so she got our 13-year-old son, Derek, a, uh, a game to learn about the planets, but it says for ages 5 and up, right, so we're like, woohoo, come on, mom, he's 13, right, so... So, so probably one of our cousins is going to get, re, you do a little re-gifting, a little, little bit of re-gifting, right, right, right. So, so we understand this, 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 this superficial human emotion of hope. I, I hope I get something I like. I hope I get something I want. I hope I can find a parking space when I go to return this gift. Tara Tutson, one of our, our young adults, said she got, right, was it her mom gave it to her? A cardigan with a, uh, with, with a furry collar. And she's like, that, that might be great mom for you, right? But, but, you know, I'm 19 or how old, 20, right? How old she is. So some of you, right, do you do that? You give gifts based on what you would want, but not based on what the person would really like to have, right? Any, any confessors in here? There's somebody like that in our family. Not going to point any names, Vanessa. So, but like, honey, that's what you would want, but that's not what they would want. Like that. All right, so anyways, enough about that. All right, but, but there's another kind of hope. There's a hope that is deep. There's a hope that's like a hunger. There's a hope that's like a longing. Hope oftentimes just is forced into a back seat. And what you find is you begin to study Paul's epistles. All of these written by Paul here. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Written by Paul though. That, that, that he's a champion of hope. He's trying to help us to understand hope is important because he knows that without hope there will never be any faith. So many of us, we, when we think about faith and how faith comes to our life, we reach for where Paul wrote that, that faith is the, <clears throat> comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's true. I believe in that. But if you read this book without any hope, it will never produce faith in your life. There has to be something inside of you that hopes 
that these promises are true for you. There has to be something inside of you that hope deep and longing inside of you that God is my father. He has my best interest at heart. And the things I read in here, that these are things that he's going to do in my life. When you read this book with hope, then it can produce faith that becomes the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Think about pageants. Anybody like to write, like Vanessa loves to watch pageants, right? So when I'm scrolling through the guide with my remote control, if I see that there's some type of beauty pageant, my goal is to get past it as quick as I can before she realizes it's on there, right? Because if she sees it, she wants to stop and watch it and see. And, 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 so, and so you can think about the virtues, the 24 virtues that are the portrait of Christ. Think of it as a pageant, right? So Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he narrows it down to the three finalists. And guess which one of them is? It's hope. He said, hey, let me give you the, the three finalists. Faith, hope, and love. Now we know that love wins the day, but hope ties for second. Right? And what is it tied with? It's tied with faith. Because Paul is trying to help us to understand that those two things, they go hand in hand. That there can be no faith if there's no hope. Let me read out of Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. Oh, come on, these are good verses today. Romans 15, 13. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. And then you will overflow with a confident hope, right? A confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This idea of a confident hope is a reference here. It's a good pairing text to, to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hope is when you long for something that's deep inside of you. Faith is when it matures into certainty that says, I know God's going to do this thing, right? Hope is the longing. And as hope matures, can, can we use the word ferments? As, as hope ferments, it becomes something different. It becomes faith and it becomes a confident hope. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's faith is when I say, I know that God's going to do this thing. That there's, that, that you, even when everybody else says, ah, that's impossible, right? There's something inside of you that has come alive. There's something that's been born inside of you. A place of faith where you stand in. It's a place of certainty. I know. And that's when it becomes the evidence of things not seen. I like that analogy of, of fermentation. We, we uh, before we were, uh, uh, had kids and, and we were newly married, we would travel a little bit. Vanessa worked for Capital One and one time I flew out to meet her where she was and she was out in, uh, in California in San Jose and we, we drove down to Monterey. Everybody been to the aquarium in Monterey, gorgeous there. And we rented a convertible and drove up the, the Pacific Coast Highway or number one, whatever that route is, to San Francisco. And we were dumb Virginians, right? We were thinking that California is warm everywhere, but hey, guess what? Northern California is cold. So we were like the tourists that were standing on the corner in our, in our shorts and our t-shirts. And while they were all in full winter coats and, and winter hats. And so, so we had this great trip and we toured a, uh, Robert Mondavi's a winery there. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the process, the science of fermentation was, was fascinating. As you study that in history, it's interesting because in, in, in the early days, in the dark ages, it was a lot of the religious institutions that did all the fermentation. We should bring that back, right? We should, can we return, we'll return to that, right? It was the monks and the monasteries. And you know why that is? Because they thought that fermentation was something that was supernatural. Because they didn't understand that yeast was a living microscopic organism. And the way something ferments, like your yeast rolls that rise, right? Because the yeast that's in it is a living organism that feeds on the starches. And then the byproduct of that, the waste, right? We don't like to think of that because we love those yeast rolls. But really what causes it to rise are the gases 
right? It creates a nice mental picture, doesn't it? The gases that are released from the microscopic organisms that are feeding on the starches, right? And so they, they didn't understand all the science of that. They didn't have, they couldn't see these microscopic organisms. So when they would ferment alcoholic beverages, they thought something super, that God did something, right? Amazing. That it, all of a sudden it just became, that's why they were called spirits. Now give me a little science, right? This one. I'm trying to carry an analogy for you that hope has to ferment in you. It has to sit for a while. It has to season. And then all of a sudden it is something supernatural when it comes to hope. That all of a sudden something inside of you, it just turns. And all of a sudden this longing moves to a place of certainty. And then I stand in a place of faith. And if you want to see what kind of faith you have, then look in the story of your life in moments of generosity that you've stepped inside. And you will learn a lot about the kind of faith that stirs in you. Listen to this. If we never hope for anything, then nothing is what we will always have. If we, however, hope for much, waiting in faith, we won't get everything, but we will possess everything that God has destined to be ours. We don't think that, that faith, like some, some theological streams that almost treat God like a slot machine, right? If you do these things, you're going to get these things back. Do we believe in reciprocity? Absolutely. Do, do we believe in the principle of sowing and, and reaping? Absolutely. But we also believe in the sovereignty of God. And we also believe that, that there, there, there are times when, when God doesn't give us a huge return on the things that, that we give. And that's part of the mystery, that we're not going to ever understand that. The, the story that, that I'm going to blog about, because we're not going to get to it today, is the feeding of the 5,000, right? Every time Jesus fed a meal, he didn't multiply the food, right? He, he had the same power every time. The food wasn't that different. But there wasn't some miracle of multiplication every single time because the sovereignty of God is the sovereignty of God and he's going to do what he does and be who he is. We believe that there's a lot of things that are going to come to us in this life that are purely born out of grace and mercy. That God, being a loving father, he just likes to lavish his children with good and great things, right? But we also believe that there are other things that God is only going to give if we're rightly positioned. If, if, if we posture ourselves in the right way, I believe that there are things in this life that God says, until you hope for them, until you hope for them long enough to where that hope matures to a place of faith, then and only then are you positioned to receive these things from me. Everything that we hope for, everything that matures in a place of faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to happen. And that's one of the truest measures of faith. Are you just as content with his no as you are with his yes. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about what does a person look like who's waiting in a place of faith, right? What, what does it look like when a person's waiting in a place of faith? If you've, if, if maybe you're, you're here this morning and you've hoped for something and, and it's matured to a place of faith where there's a certainty that you carry in your heart that God, I know that you're going to do this thing for me. That a person who stands in a place of faith is a person who's focused more on the promise than they are on the circumstance. A person waiting in faith is a person who's focused more on the promise than they are the circumstance. So I'm going to read out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I'm going to do 4, 16 through 18. 4, 16 through 18. Now this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last 
forever. There's Paul talking about their circumstances. Their circumstances were hard sometimes. And Paul was saying, hey, we're people of faith. We feel like God's given us some promises that, that we're going to plant churches all along this region of the world. And their circumstances often seem to deny that those promises were going to come true. Their circumstances, as you read through the New Testament, it seemed as though so many times that they were going to fail, but they were people of faith. They had a hope and a longing that matured and fermented into something called faith. And there was a certainty that God was going to fulfill the promise that he'd given to them. And Paul said, hey, when you live by faith, when you live by faith and not by sight, that you, if you've been given a promise from God, right, th there's times where you hope for things that maybe God hasn't promised for you that matures to a place of faith. And in that place that there's a certainty, but there's also a willingness to be submitted to God. But when God is the initiator, when God says to you, I'm going to do this for you, when God says to you, right, when God's the initiator with you, it's the same process, then we begin to hope for that thing to come, and that matures to a place of faith, and when God's made the promise to us, then no matter what our circumstances might say to us, we choose to stand on the promise of God. Some of you might be here this morning, and you feel like God's given you a promise about a vocation. He's given you a promise about being a missionary, possibly in some part of the world. Maybe he's given you a promise about some dynamic in your family that you're waiting for him to heal, that you've been given a promise of some kind, and it just seems as though God isn't keeping his end of the bargain. What we would say to you, if God has truly given you a promise, then focus on the promise and not on the circumstances and wait in a place of faith. Choices versus feelings. Oh, I like this one. Romans 4. I'm going to read 18 to 21. Romans 4, 18 to 21. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, right, God had given him a promise. That's how many descendants you will have. Talking about the stars of the sky and the, the sands of the beaches. And, and Abraham's faith did not weaken even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. You could use this text for promises versus circumstances, and you could use 2 Corinthians for cho choices versus feelings. They're so intertwined with each other. But you and I, when we're standing in a place of faith, when we're waiting in a place for God to fulfill a promise that we feel like he's given to us, there's lots of feelings that are going to try to work their way into your heart. Feelings of despair. Feelings of disappointment, maybe feelings of bitterness, maybe feelings of anger begin to come in because you feel like God's not doing, you're doing your part, but God's not doing his part. And we have this phrase that we use at City Life called self-governance, that you have got to say to your heart, heart, we're not going to feel those things, right? Think of your heart as a garden, you've got to decide what you're going to let get planted there. Your heart is a garden. You, if, if you're going to let weeds of disappointment and despair and then come up, then eventually it chokes out the faith and then all of a sudden the hope is displaced and then all of a sudden you're no longer positioned to receive this thing that God wants to do in you and give to you. There has to be something inside of you that says, heart, we're going to stand in a place of believing of faith, of certainty, and despair. I'm not making room for you. I'm, uh, uh, anger, you're not coming into my life today, right? There's got to be you. Sometimes you can think of emotions as people that are trying to break into your house and you have a conversation with them and you say, we're not letting you in. You with me? That, that there is a choice. That, that, that the world tries to tell us that we're a victim to our feelings. This book says, no, 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 no. You, you should have a sense of authority over yourself. And, and you can't control the emotions that come knocking on the door, but you can choose the ones that you let into your life to live with you.
right? And if you've got feelings that you've let in, then it might be that today some of you need to serve some eviction notices, right? Some of you can take despair and say, hey, it's been great having you for a little while, but you're moving out, right? We're, 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 we're putting you out on the street, but, right? Say to your heart, heart, we're, we're, we're going to feel things that, that I'm going to make decisions to choose to be hopeful. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to be joyful. All right, let's go to the next one. Acting versus idleness. Acting versus a person waiting in a place of faith, focuses on the promise, chooses what kind of feelings they let take up residence in their heart, and a person of faith is a person who's willing to act. James 2, 17 and 26 both talk about this idea that faith without works is dead, right? So, so when, when we read the story of Abraham, right, he's 100 years old. He's been standing in a place of faith for a long time. Who you, what you see is based on who you know. The whole world around them saw, and hey, I know this was ancient times, but even in Abraham's day, 100 was old. Okay, I mean, right, right. So, 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 what Abraham could have said, what he could have said is, God, if if my wife's going to have a baby, you, you, it's going to just have to be something that you take care of, right? At some point, he has to make a decision to go into the tent to be with his wife. You, you're tracking with me? At some point, he realizes that I have a, a part that I'm supposed to play in the story. You get to the story of David and Goliath. David's on the mountain and, and Goliath is cursing the gods of the Israelites. David could have said, let's just gather the army up here. We're just going to pray. We're just going to pray that Goliath is going to die. Right? And they enter into this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer service. Not that that's not a bad thing. There's times and places for that, right? But there's also times and places for action. There's times and places that our faith should lead us to doing something. At some point, David said, no, no, i got to go down into that valley. I have to fight this guy, right? Sometimes faith looks like motion. Peter's in the boat, and Jesus says, come to me. At some point, Peter's faith had to take a step. So some of you, you might be here today and you've been waiting in a place of faith and I don't know what it's going to look like for you. I don't know what it's going to sound like for you. I don't know what it's going to be for you. But I just want to encourage you that it might be that God says to you, you've got to take a step. You've, you've got to step out in a place of faith if you want to see this thing come to fruition. It's like Jamie and Michelle and their family moving here over the summer, right? What a huge step of faith. We talked about that in our conversation, right? And, and we said, hey, all that we know is that God is going to meet us in this place. Let's just take a step together. Let's take a step together. All right, I'm going to introduce you to these and then I'm going to blog on them this week. But we're not going to work through all of them this morning. And I've got a couple of closing remarks and we're going to band come back up. John 6, 1 through 13, you get the story of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. You know, there's times when you read the stories of the Bible... And, and, and you'll work to, you'll have a conversation with God. God, who, which person in this story am I supposed to relate to and connect with? Does that make sense? So I, there's, a, there's a, the one person's perspective might be that God uses that to speak to you. But then there's also times, and maybe you've never done this before, where the, the whole the story itself becomes like a person. And I want to stretch your thinking for a minute, right? The whole story, every character in the whole entire story, the, the whole thing becomes like a person and the whole story is instructive to you. And that's how I'm going to 
teach through this when I blog about it this week in John 6, 1 through 13. You see lots of key people. You see the disciples. You see the little boy with a little bit of food. You see, all, you see the people in the crowd. And if you put all of that together in one person, you begin to see some principles of faith in moments of generosity. And I'm going to blog through that this week. And three of those are divine ownership, the sovereignty of God, and generosity. That a person who has an opportunity to be generous... That their faith looks like these things. All right, blog about that this week. All right, so this is my closing point for faith. When my heart is pure and my POV, we talked about that last week, my point of view is proper, I can safely hope for material things because my material wealth will always lead to a Christ-honoring material response. When my heart is pure and my POV is proper, I can safely hope for material things because my material wealth will always lead to a Christ-honoring material response. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I love Deuteronomy 7.9. I want to read this to you. So many teachings, and many of us have been in the church for a little while. You, you've sat through many sermons that uh, work through the different names of God. And this one's always left out. You know, this is like the, the forgotten name of God. So I'm taking it, making it part of my personal mission in life to get this one back on the list. So, so, so Deuteronomy 7.9. Deuteronomy 7.9. says, understand therefore that the Lord your God is indeed God. Here it comes. He is the faithful God. In the Hebrew, it's the Amon El. He is the faithful God, the Amon El, who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commandments. Now, now, now this name of God, the great Amon El, the faithful God is an important word for us because when you move forward in time and you get to John 3, Nicodemus comes to have a conversation with Jesus at night, right? He's a religious leader of the day. He's concerned about what people are going to think about him. And in this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, he makes a statement. You've got to get a, an older translation like a King James or a New King James. In the King James, it's verily, verily. In some other translations, it renders it truly, truly. But you see it in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 11. And, and and that word that Jesus used in that moment was an alliteration, an Aramaic, because there's no comparable word in the, from, the, from the Hebrew. So, so it's called an alliteration. They, they make up a word that sounds like the one in Hebrew. And what he says, what he says to him is aman, aman. That's the word that translates verily, verily, or truly, truly. Now that word would have meant something to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus was a religious leader of his day. In order for him to rise to the position that he did, he would have memorized everything from Genesis to Malachi, chapter and verse. He would have been a, a walking, right? You could have just given him a verse, he could have given it to you. So when Jesus says to him, Aman, Aman, Nicodemus, he would have said, whoa, that's Deuteronomy. That's, that's one of the names of God. Jesus was trying to say, Nicodemus, if, if you really believe that God is faithful, then it's going to change the way that you live. If you really believe that he's the Amon El, it's going to begin to change who you are. It begins with who you understand him to be. And we know what Jesus was saying to him is, hey, and who he is is me. He's talking to you right now. Some of you, during this sermon series, I hope that, that you're having a Nicodemus moment with the Savior of the world. That he's saying to you, Aman, Aman. He's saying to you, hey, do you know who I am? Do, do you understand that I am the creator of the universe? 
Because when we have a revelation of who Christ is that is deep and that is true and that is full in every way, it changes the way that we live. And right in the story of the birth of Christ, God says it with an exclamation point. And it better change how generous you are. Christians should be the most generous people in the world. It should be reckless. Can we say that? Our generosity should look reckless to the world around us. I think then and only then does it cross the threshold of something sacred. Father, we believe that you are the great Aman Aman. We believe that you are the faithful God. We believe that you keep your covenant and your promises unto a thousand generations. And we declare just from our own heart today that you are the one who's able to accomplish and do everything that you've promised. And may it be that this revelation of who you are, that your faithfulness, your goodness, your power, how almighty you are, that it would begin to change the way that we live, especially in this area of generosity. That there would be a material response that would flow from our lives. That every moment, every opportunity we have to be generous in this world, that we would step into it with great celebration. And the world on the outside looking in would say, how is that even possible? That we want to be a people, we want to be a church, just like the first century church, that stand, that causes the world to stand in a place of awe. In Jesus' name, come on, stand with me and let's worship together.